On October 14, 2012, a couple world records were smashed by a guy by the name of Felix Baumgartner. Now, these world records have held for over 50 years, but he had taken it upon himself to train for this event where he was going to break the world record for the fastest dive. And so he, uh, he did this uh, he, when he was at maximum velocity of his dive. He was going 834 miles per hour, okay? That means that his body broke the speed of sound. Doesn't that sound like a great time? Nice. And then the other record that he broke was he broke the world record for the highest free fall. He actually ascended in a hot air balloon 24 miles above New Mexico, and then he decided that he would jump out. He'd been training for this, okay? If any of you think, like, I'm planning my summer vacation and this sounds like a good idea, come talk to me after service. I want to try to talk you out of it, okay? Now, the, in preparing for this, he actually consulted the guy whose records he was trying to break, a guy by the name of Joe Kittinger, U.S. Air Force Colonel, retired. He was 84 years old at the time. And when he made the jump, there was only one voice that he allowed in this helmet, and that was the voice of Joe Kittinger. So as Felix made his way, he had this one voice, the voice of a guy who had already done this kind of jump before. And it was a good thing, because once he had made the initial jump, he soon started spinning out of control. And it was the exact same situation that happened to Joe Kittinger about 50 years prior, and it could have cost him his life. But Joe was able to talk Felix through the situation. He was able to again stabilize and make a successful landing. In the article in National Geographic, they highlighted the relationship between these two men. And he says this, prior to the jump, Kittinger said, I'll be the only one who knows how Felix feels at that moment when he jumps from that step. Because I've done it. He'd be a good voice to hear. Now, I'd imagine in your summer plans, not many of you are thinking, I'm going to try to go for the fastest dive or the highest free fall, right? But I would imagine that a lot of us would like to have a deeper relationship with God. That we would like to walk in a stronger and a closer way with Christ. And that's why the book of 1 Thessalonians is so important. You see, this book, its theme is this, following Jesus in a fallen world. And it tells us how you and I can do this. And right now in our culture, I think the greatest need that we have is for Christians to be people of spiritual depth. I mean, right now in our culture, things are morally unraveling so fast, it's almost now weekly that something else is just coming unglued and unhinged. And what are we to do? What, how should Christians respond? I think the best response is if we demonstrate and manifest true spiritual maturity in Christ. But how do you do that? How do you become a person of spiritual depth? Well, this text that we're looking at, 1 Thessalonians, as this book concludes, it tells us, exactly how to move to become people of spiritual depth. Last time we looked at chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, and beginning in verse 19, he's going to give us essential truth for becoming people of spiritual maturity. And the first thing that he emphasizes is this. You and I, we need to be pursuing holiness. Let's take a look at verse 19. He says, Do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully and hold fast to that which is good and abstain 
from every form of evil. Now, when you hear the word holiness, some of you got the idea that, okay, that's about like some hermit guy, never shaves, lives in a cave, wakes up at four, runs around with a candle, does a lot of praying. And that's your idea because that's what Hollywood would want you to think holiness is. But actually, holiness is to be set apart from sin and to be set apart to God. And that's what God desires for each of his, his people. He actually, when the moment you and I believe in Christ, we believe he lived a perfect life, he died and paid the penalty for our sins, and he rose again so that we who believe have true forgiveness and spiritual life. The moment you and I believe the gospel, the Spirit of God takes up residency in our life, and he's referred to as the Holy Spirit. Holy to set you apart from sin, and to set you apart to God. And you need to know something about holiness. Holiness doesn't just happen. Somewhere along the line, we got the idea that, well, some people just, you know, they're just kind of gifted to be holy and set apart to God. And they have a way of just staying away from sin, and it comes really easy to them. Actually, we need to know that any trait in an individual that's, that's worth noting came from a lot of diligence and even discipline. Like, for instance, uh, playing the guitar. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen Christopher Parkinson, but he is one of the top uh, classical guitarists in the world. On several occasions, I've seen him play. Absolutely fascinating to watch. I mean, his fingers are just moving like a machine. They can do all these stretches. The music is so beautiful. And to watch how well he can play. And you think, like, man, that guy's just really amazingly gifted. But if you were to ever talk with him, he would tell you, in actuality, he's been working and practicing for hours and hours since a child. Really interesting, with Christopher Parkinson, if you go to one of the concerts, he has, you can pick this up, in, uh, his life story where he gives his testimony of how he's placed his faith in Christ. It's just one of his ways of using the platforms God has given him for the furthering of the gospel. But if you were thinking like, man... I, all I have to do is, if I was just really gifted, I could play like that. And I don't know, I've done this before, and I'm sure you have too. You come back from a concert like that, and you grab your guitar out of the closet, you dust it off, tune it up a little bit, and you think you're going to just start playing like that, and lo and behold, you're just as bad as the last time you picked it up, right? That's how it works. But if you were going to get better, what would you have to do? You're going to have to apply yourself. You need to understand with holiness, being set apart from sin and set apart to God, it's a active, it's not passive. You have to engage, it's pursued. And notice, what does that look like? Well, look at verse 19. Do not quench the Spirit. Holiness comes when you and I are depending on the Spirit of God. When he says do not quench, this is the word that would be used for like extinguishing a fire. To like quench a fire, like what you do is you have to either remove its source of fuel but you could like also pour water or throw dirt on a fire, and it'll extinguish it. And what he's saying is, do not quench the Spirit. You see, when we believe, the Spirit of God takes up residency in our life, and God wants us yielded to, dependent upon God, and specifically His Spirit. And so we, what happens, we quench the Spirit when we refuse to be dependent upon Him, when we defy like God has revealed in his word, when we actually intentionally, when we start engaging in sin, it is a way of quenching the Spirit's work in our life. Now, we can stifle God's work in a lot of different ways. 
But when he quenches, we, we have a way of just really disturbing what God is trying to accomplish when we deny Scripture and we defy the Spirit's yield, uh, work in our life. And it's interesting, it talks about like quenching the Spirit here. You can never quench the Spirit of God away because God's Spirit is alive. You can't end it. And he places his Spirit in his life. But you can't, you can quench it like Ephesians 4.30 says, you can grieve the Holy Spirit of God, and you do so by actively sinning. But on the other hand, you can actually respect the Holy Spirit. You can experience the life of the Holy Spirit. And you do so by yielding in your life, surrendering your will, you actively place yourself in God's will. It's like saying, God, I present my life. Romans 12, 2. I dedicate myself to you. My will, my mind, my heart, my body. Lord, I'm setting it apart to you, and I ask that you would do your work, that you would fill me with your strength. And God's Spirit is looking to provide this kind of supernatural work in your life to help you, to bring perseverance, peace. You know, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, joy and peace holiness and, and love, self-control, all of this faithfulness, guess where that comes from? The Spirit of God. The reason you'll be more loving and engaging with the gospel and that you persevere through difficulty, God is giving his Spirit to accomplish this kind of work in your life. And so if we're to pursue holiness, we cannot quench the Spirit of God. That's what he says in verse 19. Something else you need to see. We need to be devoting ourselves to the word. So he says, do not quench the spirit. And look at verse 20. And do not despise prophetic utterances. So the despise has the idea of like reject, to count it as nothing. It's irrelevant. Prophetic utterances. The phrase can refer to a spoken revelation from God, but it's usually referred to a written word of scripture. Prophetic utterances. It's God's authoritative message. And for the most part, when you look at prophets, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, they were foretellers. They were already declaring what God had revealed in his word, and they were calling people to obey, to heed, to exhort them, to be encouraged, to correct them when needed. But it was a foretelling ministry. There were on occasions where God had his prophets have a foretelling ministry. That is, that they would actually say something that was going to happen in the future. And we certainly see that in the Old Testament. There's all these prophecies about things that are going to happen in the world. And that's one of the reasons when you want to understand why we believe the Bible to be a supernatural book. You see all of the fulfilled prophecies. You look at the prophecies given to us about Jesus Christ. Jesus shows up. He already fulfills over a hundred of them. It tells us of a supernatural book. And it points to the supernatural one, the God-man, Jesus and how he fulfills prophecies. But in the early church, before the, old, the New Testament was completed, the 27 books called the canon, the, the official authoritative books, God had, on occasion, his prophets actually tell things that were needed for the early church. They, he would either address a situation that had not been uh, given yet in Scripture, or something that was absolutely essential for the well-being of the church. Until the, the New Testament was complete, God on different occasions had his prophets function this way. So for instance, you see Acts chapter 15, verse 22. 
You see Judas and Silas, and they are functioning in the normal role of a prophet. And that is doing just like you see there. They were prophets themselves, and they encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. They were exercising very similar to the gift like we would call preaching or teaching. They were exhorting people with what God had already revealed. And if you need a definition of prophecy, you can find one in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3. Look at this. He says, But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. So that's what prophecy was. It's taking what God revealed and exhorting the people. This is how God is calling us to live. This is what life in Christ looks like. This is holiness. But there were on occasions before the New Testament was complete that God had prophets speak of events that were going to happen in the future. You can see this like in the book of Acts. There's a guy by the name of Agabus. And like in Acts chapter 11, he's the one that God had actually speak and say that there was going to be a worldwide famine. And he, God spoke through Agabus because he wanted the churches to prepare for this famine, especially the areas that were going to be hit hard. This is the same guy, Agabus, that told Paul, as Paul was making his way back to Jerusalem, he told Paul that the Jews in Jerusalem are going to hand you over to the Gentiles. And that's exactly what happened. And so that was the role of prophets. In the New Testament, when the New Testament was completed, the prophets, if you look at church history, in terms of foretelling, giving future events, that ended. The foretelling ministry of prophecy, of speaking God's truth that had already been revealed, exhorting, correcting, encouraging, that was an ongoing ministry, continued to this very day. There are, though, some people, and I'm sure you've met them, that actually feel that God is still giving foretelling prophecy today. That God is using individuals to speak uh, about different things, small details, big details, about what is to come. And I'm sure you've encountered people that have said, hey, God told me to tell you this, or I have a word from the Lord for you. Right? I, I know you have. At first service, lots of people came up and told me, man, I, I, people tell me these things. It makes me nervous. But is God in the business of foretelling through individuals today? Are people really getting a word from the Lord? God told me to tell you this. When people say that, uh, they oftentimes do with the caveat that, well, it may not be 100% accurate. Meaning, well, I, you know, like it may not work out. So let's, let's take a look at this. This is God giving prophecy in the foretelling way today. Let's look at the nature of God. One thing we know about God is that God is absolutely truthful, right? Never speaks error. In fact, if you want a couple of texts on that, like Titus chapter 1, verse 2, it says, In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. Can God lie? No. Or you want another one? Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, where it says, So that by two unchangeable things that in which it is impossible for God to lie. He can't lie. Because his nature is true. He always speaks true. And so, is it possible that God would be speaking to people of things that are not going to happen? No. So, you know, one of the beauties and the differences between the early New Testament church and the church today is that we have the completed canon. God has given everything that we need for life and faith in his word. 
And so when he says, do not despise prophetic utterances, he's saying, don't neglect the word that I have given to you. I have spoken it to you. And just to accentuate how important this matter is to God, do you know how he ends the Bible, the book of Revelation? And the book of Revelation ends with this warning. Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 and 19. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. So you get the idea that God does not want you to add to it. Listen to the next verse. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, meaning I'm going to cut this out or I'm not really interested in this because it's, it's not what I want, God says God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. So let's talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I firmly believe that the Spirit of God gives impressions to individuals. I see it in my own life. He, he leads us to take certain courses of action. Uh, he leads us to engage in certain conversations, people, people we may not even know. But the idea that God is giving inspiration in the sense that he is giving revelation, further revelation, friends, I find that to be on very dangerous ground on a biblical account. Church history holds that it ended. Uh, the Bible is clear that, when, that we're not to add nor to subtract. And so the idea of, of having prophecy or some sort of secondary version of prophecy where it may or may not happen, it may not be 100% accurate, well, that is foreign to the New Testament. And I do not think that we are to be engaging in that. In fact, it's really interesting. When you look at prophecies, like certain groups, like Seventh-day Adventists or cults, like Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, all of those have actually given prophecies of when Jesus Christ returns. And when he doesn't come back, they either make excuses or like, well, they move the date to another date. Friends, that is dangerous ground account on a biblical account. So what does it mean to not despise prophetic utterances? Well, I think probably the greatest way that we despise prophetic utterances is that we frankly don't actually deal with the Bible and understand the Word of God. Oh, sure, I bet we got a lot of folks that say, yep, I believe the Bible is the Word of God. Really? The Bible is the Word of God? I mean, it's from God? And yet, how very few Christians, especially Christians in America, actually spend time even looking or reading the Bible. In fact, when you look at the polls by Gallup and Barna, the level of biblical literacy in America is abysmal. Just to give you a few stats from their research. Only half of the Christians polled identified correctly Jesus as the person who delivered the Sermon on the Mount. Barely three of five Christians could recall the names of the first four books of the New Testament. Or this one I just found like, you've got to be kidding me. 81% of born-again like evangelical, I, I, I have turned from sin, trusting in Jesus, 81% of born-again Christians actually thought that this statement, God helps those who help themselves, is in the New Testament. When in actuality, it was written by who? Benjamin Franklin. But it goes to show that, yeah, we, we say we believe the Bible, but the reality is we rarely engage it. I, was, I heard this... Uh, one father who had a son who was about ready to go to college, and uh, he was worried that 
you know, when he gets to college, those professors are going to just tear him up on, in terms of his faith. And I know that some of you parents have had that exact same experience. In fact, you've sent your kids to a what you thought was a really good Christian college, and lo and behold, the people that were teaching about the Bible did everything they can to destroy the, the uh, inerrancy idea, the authority of it. They did anything they could to pull your kid's faith apart. And so this dad was worried about that, and he said, listen, son, do not let them take the book of Jonah out of your Bible. And the son doesn't listen to that. And when the son came back from school, his dad said, so hey, did they take the book of Jonah out of the Bible? And that is actually one of the tactics that they use. they like, come on, you really believe in a giant fish eating a person and spitting him out for you? Come on, that's ridiculous. And let me show you some other things that are ridiculous. And that's, kind of, that's one of the tacks of just eroding the faith. So he asked his son, hey, did they take the book of Jonah out of your Bible? And much to the dad's surprise, his son said, the book of Jonah isn't even in your Bible. What? So his dad got over his bookshelf and there, oh, there's his Bible. So he dusted off a little bit. He starts kind of thumbing through the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's, he's looking, the boy's just watching this. He said, Dad, you can stop. I actually cut the book of Jonah out of your Bible before I went to college. The point? What is it? What good is it that we're telling, oh, we believe the Bible is the Word of God when we're never in it? When it's not really ever part of our churches, not part of our worship. It's casual. It's just something on the shelf. Friends, if we're going to be developing holiness and pursuing it, we've got to be dependent upon the Spirit, and we need to be devoting ourselves to the Word. Let me show you something else. We need to be desiring good and despising evil. If we're going to be pursuing holiness, look what he says, verse 21. But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good and abstain from every form of evil. And this idea of examine it was a word used to like test metals. To find out, are they, is it really genuine? And we're to test, notice what the text says. Examine what? Verse 21. Everything from preaching to popular opinion, everything kind of goes through the grid of scripture. Is it good? We're to hold on to it. If it's wrong, evil, false, it's not going to be lodging in our heads, in our hearts, in our minds. We're, we are to do, as the text says, desiring good and despising evil. And there's all sorts of good out there, and God wants us enjoying it. Like scientists seeing the greatness of God. Doctors experiencing and seeing just how fascinating the human body is. It's meant to lead to worship. Anything that's good, we're to hold on to. And if it's evil, which is oftentimes the distortion of what is good, we're like, no, we're not going to have anything to do with it. This directly applies to like what we believe, how we behave, what we talk about, what we think about, what we say. If you want a grid, if you want to see what this kind of looks like in a person's life, David gives a great illustration in Psalm 101, verses 2 and following. Listen to what he says. I will give heed, I will give heed to the blameless way. I'm going to hold on to that which is blameless. When will you come to me? I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. You see, it's like when I walk around in my own home, I'm not a shell of a being because I've just eroded my life with hypocrisy. I got integrity. And he says, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. Isn't that good? 
no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. I'm not going to let evil have its hold on my life. And when we live in this world, I mean, there's everything that is calling to our attention. And some of it is very appealing to our flesh, but it's absolutely wrong. And we've got to go with the mindset we're pursuing holiness, and we're going to despise evil because we are desiring and clinging on to what is good. And he says, a perverse heart shall depart from me. I will know no evil. Don't get the idea it's really cool if you're just an expert on the things that are evil and wrong. That's not what God desires for your life. You certainly have an awareness. It's not that you live in ignorance. But you don't need to be an expert on evil. God wants you to be an expert on truth, to know him, his goodness, his strength. So let me give you just a, a great verse that gives all sorts of freedom and just launches us forward in terms of pursuing holiness. Philippians 4.8. It just says simply this. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. So as you go through your week, take Philippians 4.8. And just ask, is this helping me or hindering my walk with God? Just the things, the, your entertainment, uh, what you do, uh, all the stuff that's coming through your phone on Instagram, Snapchat, helping or hurting, blessing or hindering. And maybe do this, make it a point each day just to dwell on something worthy of praise. It's pretty broad, there's so much out there. Make it a point to dwell on something worthy of praise. What God is calling us to do in this text is to pursue holiness, and that requires that you and I exercise discernment, saying yes to the good and no to the bad. That's what discernment does. Discernment, like in your spiritual diet. Honestly, does the word of God in prayer have anything to do with your spiritual diet? If you don't have a diet that encourages your faith, then don't be surprised if your soul is rather emaciated. You never feed it. And there's, there's the kind of cotton candy Christian approach, but it doesn't lead to stability of soul and maturity that he's talking about here. So what you want is the pure of the word. What you want are songs that are truly going to lift you up. You read a book that is going to encourage awe of God and the greatness of being a believer. Exercise discernment in your relationships. Think about your friendships and your family and all the people that you interact with. Are these relationships healthy or harmful? Is there, is there benefit? Do you, are these people leading you downward, or are you an instrument and tool in, their, in this situation to help people grow? Um, when you're considering, considering your interactions in your family, with your spouse, your kids, your parents, your grandparents, are you acting and interacting in ways that are beneficial and a blessing, or are they counterproductive and alienating? What you want to do is cling on to the things that are good. How do you earn your money? Is it legal or is it illegal? How do you run your business or go about your work? Ethical and moral or unethical and immoral? In your entertainment, like what you're watching, what you do, what's on your iPad, on your computer, all the stuff that is going through your phone. Does it do anything to encourage your walk with God? Is there anything noble about it? Good. Or is, this, is, this, is it just not a waste of time or worth the 
sending your mind and your heart into the gutter. See, if we're going to pursue holiness, we got to desire good and despise evil. See, God wants his believers to grow deep and mature. That's done by pursuing holiness. But notice how this passage ends. It also is done by trusting God's faithfulness. Look at verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. The God of peace, the God that brought peace with you and him through Jesus Christ, the God who gives us peace in the midst of our circumstances and our difficulties and our trials, may the God of peace himself sanctify you, to have the idea of setting you apart entirely. And he goes on to say, may your spirit, soul, and body, not that there's you got a spirit and a soul and, and a body. It's really more your immaterial and material. And what he's saying is everything about you, God wants set apart to him. And he's actually at work. May your spirit, soul, and body be preserved complete without blame. Doesn't mean that you're sinless. But it means that you handle your sin by confessing it. And that there is, there is integrity in your life because you're walking with God that you're without blame, blame at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, here's another reference. Every chapter ends with this reference that Jesus is coming back and he wants his people living in light of his return. And God knows that we're not capable of rejoicing always and praying without ceasing and, and always giving thanks and that we do sometimes wander into evil. That's why verse 24 is so important. I've underlined it in my Bible. Look at this. Faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it to the day of Christ Jesus. You know what we're resting on? We're resting on God and his faithfulness. No matter how sinful we might be at times, our propensity to do what is wrong, God never lets us go. His promises are irrevocable. Even with our constant bent to want to do what is wrong, and we all struggle with this, God is faithful. He is committed to his people, and he's going to bring us into his heavenly glory, and he wants us to grow deep and mature in Christ. You see, if we're going to be truly growing deep spiritually, we must be pursuing holiness. We're actively involved in the process, but at the exact same time, we are fully trusting in God's faithfulness. That's how we set it up. He's sovereign, but we're also called to be fully responsible. And so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he ends this magnificent letter. He says, verse 25, Brethren, pray for us. Really interesting. Apostle Paul, he suffered and struggled just like you and I do. He understood the power of prayer. When you look at the New Testament, Paul sees prayer like unleashing God's power in individual lives. That's why he was always praying. When people were brought to his mind, he's praying for them. That's why he's asking people to pray for him. It's rough and it's tough. I can be discouraged. It's painful. It's overwhelming. It seems like the forces of evil and the tide of the world are greater than the, than the faith that I've got. So would you pray for me? Brethren, pray for us. And then he says, verse 26, Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. And this is a cultural kiss that was uh, used in a form of greeting. It comes from Judaism. Uh, still practiced in a lot of parts of the world. Men would like kiss another guy on the cheek when they woke up, put their hands on their shoulder. And then women would do the same. Uh, you still see that today. 
um, because it would get a lot of folks in a lot of trouble, we're into holy handshakes and holy hugs, right? Okay? But the idea that they would do this is to say acceptance, embrace, glad to see you, I'm for you, we got unity. That's what this was all about. And he says, greet all of the brethren with a holy kiss. His heart is fully in it. And then he says this really strong charge, verse 27, you may have missed it. He says, I adjure you by the Lord. It's a command. It's like calling for an oath. Swear to me that you will do this. Have this letter read to all the brethren. See, in the synagogues where the Jewish people came to worship, they always read the scriptures and then they had someone who who had studied them actually talk about how they apply to one's life. Help you better understand it. That same tradition of having the word of God exposed to the people during worship and then being challenged and exhorted and showing how this applies was carried over into the churches by God's divine design. You see, God fully intends to bring transformation through his revelation. Verses like this show us the importance of scripture being a part of the worship of God's people. God fully intends that we would take a letter like 1 Thessalonians and work through it, read it, understand it, and talk about how it applies to our life. We got a guy in our church going through a very serious trial. I met with him and his wife this week. And he told me he was so thankful that our church was committed to verse-by-verse teaching because this is what gave strength to his soul. This is what developed him as a man. And friends, that's what we need. We need God's word deep in our lives. That's why we're committed to this book, because that's what God has always intended. The idea that we're just going to be superficial and just kind of entertain people and maybe throw a few Bible verses into it, friends, that's never what God intended. He wants his people deep and mature, and it never comes apart from the Bible. You see, the Spirit of God takes the word of God to accomplish the work of God in an individual's life. And that's why he says, swear to me by oath, I adjure you by the Lord. Have this letter read to all the brethren. And think of it. That's exactly what happened in the Thessalonian church. And it's happening even this day in our church. Isn't that cool? Just like God intended. And so finally, he commits them to the grace of our Lord. Look at verse 28. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. That's what what God wants. He wants us to thrive in the riches of our relationship with Christ, to experience peace, his joy, his hope, his strength in life. All of this comes when we just simply commune with Christ. We talk with him. We ask him for his strength. And God readily supplies. Why? You see, grace makes us people of spiritual depth. We enjoy God. We radiate his love. And that's what he intends. And friends, that's perhaps the greatest need in Christianity today. People who will follow Jesus in a fallen world. People who are deep in grace and growing deep and mature in their relationship with Jesus Christ. And spiritual death is the process, the result of pursuing holiness and trusting God's faithfulness. Timothy Dalrymple is a guy that, if you're involved in gymnastics, you probably have heard of. Uh, At age 15, he started winning national championships. He got a scholarship to Stanford where he was training for the Olympics 
When he was a sophomore at Stanford, he was the number one collegiate gymnast. In a meet, he did a flip that went wrong. He ended up landing on his neck, and that eventually led to him being paralyzed. So as a young man, paralyzed, he had a lot of time laying in his bed. And even such a severe trial of being paralyzed, you go from the very top, and now it's just kind of laying on your back. God can use, and he did so in the life of Timothy. Dalrymple um, eventually went on to get a Ph.D. at Harvard. And also, it's during this time of recovery that God used to deepen this young man's faith in very significant ways. He said in an interview, well, even while as a child, you know, he talked about all the time looking up at a ceiling while he was paralyzed, I had plenty of time to think. And I always had a philosophical bent. And I spent a lot of time thinking about all sorts of ultimate questions, especially the question of whether there is some sort of existence beyond death. I don't know which one I found more terrifying, that there would be some existence, but there, that there would not. But in this interview with Marvin Alasky several years ago, Marvin asked him, Timothy, what helped you grow in your faith? And what he said was this philosophical question gave way to a personal relationship and example. And this is what he said. Well, what it came down to is the example of my father. He's a genuinely loving, faithful, righteous person. And it helped. And I saw in his life something undeniably true that I couldn't explain away. Friends, we become people of influence for Jesus when people see Christ at work in our life, when they see Jesus for who he really is. And that's what God intends. We are to go and make disciples of all the nations. And we do so as those who are growing Christians. And spiritual death is the result of pursuing holiness and trusting in God's faithfulness. And that's God's divine design for us today. That's the emphasis of this letter, that we go forth in the goodness and the joy of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, what an amazing letter. So much growth that has happened in our lives individually. I know me personally, just really challenged by living in light of Jesus' return. And God, for someone who has come here today who's never trusted in Jesus, would right now that you've got their full attention, would they just pray with me and say, God, I turn from myself and my self-centeredness and my sin, and I trust Jesus. I trust in him that he died and paid the penalty for my sins, that he rose again, that he can truly be the Lord of my life. Lord, for all of us, Help us mature and grow deep. Accomplish your purposes in our lives in this generation. For your glory, this we ask in Jesus' name.